Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's been a busy few weeks for 10 by 9 back on the road as well as back in the black box. And we have three fantastic stories for you on this podcast. One bleak autumn evening, mischief had set in. In an attempt to entertain ourselves, we decided to make a Ouija board. She had the ability to fall asleep mid-sentence, snoring and all. (laughs) Only to spring to life and finish her sentence when she heard the click of Batwoman's heels outside the office door. His patronising tone continued. We find that the wait and the expectation makes those three days all the more fulfilling. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So prepare for a ghostly apparition, some tricks on the hospital wards, and a pre-marriage guidance course from hell. Here we go with our first story. I was at Flowerfield Art Centre in beautiful Port Stewart on October 28th. The Halloween-inspired theme was ghosts. Here's first-timer Emma Kane. I'm standing at the Crescent in Port Stewart, looking up at Dominican College. The building is the colour of a rain cloud. It is surrounded by a stone wall. The stained glass windows of the old chapel glow a warm tangerine by the light of the setting sun. A murder of black crows are gathered in the oratory around its cross. Hand to brow, eyes squinting, I peer at the castle-esque building, home to the Dominican sisters for almost a hundred years, home to me for five. I realise the time I spent as a boarder at Dominican College was the longest time I've ever spent in one place. Deposited at the convent boarding school aged 11, my parents told anyone who asked that they had enrolled me to get me away from the troubles at home. I later realised that this not only referred to the political crisis in Northern Ireland, but to the domestic dilemma that had broken out between my parents. As an only child, I had long since dreamt of sharing my bedroom with a sister. Suddenly, I was sharing with 14 other girls. The luxury of privacy became a distant memory. When I stopped missing home and my tears dried up, I picked up my chin and began to revel in the company, to appreciate my newfound family. As children do, we made our own fun, amusing ourselves to no end by impersonating our carers. The nuns were curious creatures, shuffling along the corridors, eyes downcast, lips pursed, keeping us all at arm's length. As a teenager, I craved the intimacy that I had lacked within my family unit. I couldn't understand how these so-called women had chosen a solitary existence, why they wanted to turn away from basic human contact, from the love of another. I often wondered if the fact that they had been put in charge of a large number of pubescent girls was him upstairs having a laugh. We considered the nuns' former lives, the idea that joining the convent had been an attempt to escape some demeanour or other, the possibility that they could have been pushed into it. We made up elaborate dramatic stories for each individual sister, affairs with married men and suppressed homosexuality being the two favourite themes. We asked each other what they had been like before, when they were young. We wondered what their hair was like underneath their habits, what they'd looked like made up, Nails painted, lips blush pink, in heels. 
The nuns rang bells for everything, to wake us, to tell us to study, to eat, to sleep. They used the brass handheld bells like weapons, shaking them with attitude. Of course it had a knock-on effect. We rebelled by testing the boundaries of not just the rules, but of what they stood for, religion. We challenged the nuns and poor Father Brian to within an inch of their lives. We hid tarot cards under our mattresses, attempted to read each other's tea leaves, refused to go to confession, tried and often failed to get out of mass, asked awkward questions about the existence of the Almighty. We crept along the spooky corridors at night, long after lights out, in our sock soles, frightening each other with ghost stories of the white nun said to haunt the place. The white nun was said to have thrown herself off the cliff into the icy ocean beneath because she couldn't be bear to be parted from her lover. One bleak autumn evening, boredom, mischief had set in. In an attempt to entertain ourselves, we decided to make a Ouija board. We spent the day writing the letters of the alphabet in our jotters, cutting them out, sticking them with blue tack from the back of our wham posters to a circular mirror. We hid the finished product under a mattress, waited for the bell for lights out. Practicing our anybody theirs, we giggled, vowing not to put our hands away, no matter what. Only four of us were brave enough to follow through. When sure that all was still, apart from the gale force storm that threatened to put the windows in, we made our way to a secluded part of the building, far away from the prying eyes of the nuns, should any of them stir. Armed with her makeshift Ouija board, a glass, a torch, a single fag from Sheila's and the Prom, Dutch Courage, we made our way to the stairwell outside the drama room. We set up at the top of the stairs. Pulling our dressing gowns, cardigans, fleeces tighter round us, we gathered about the table, pyjama clad. The air felt static. We were jumpy, nervous. Did we really want to do this? What if it actually worked? The northwesterly wind howled as if warning us. The light of the full moon shone brightly through the window. Hearts racing, faces pasty, unable to admit that our bravado was misplaced. We were jittery, reluctant. But no one wanted to back out now, to lose face. We had to return to the dorm with a story for others, an account of what happened, even if it was disappointing. At least we hadn't chickened out, stead in bed. Four fingers lightly touched the bottom of the upside-down glass. We tried to focus, concentrate, work together, in between nervous giggles. I spoke first. Is there anybody there? The others exploded into peals of laughter. Are we doing this or not? Come on, concentrate. We've come this far. Okay, everybody, close your eyes and focus, for God's sake. As the glass slowly began to move, one by one, we opened our eyes wide. Pallors paled. The hairs on our arms stood on end. One of the girls let out a squeak. But we all kept our fingers lightly touching the glass. Weighing each other up, we watched it slowly move to Y for yes. Are any of you moving this? Oh my God, are you all seeing this? We gripped each other's arms with our spare hands, petrified at the enormity of the dark world we were dabbling in. Can you tell us your name? Somebody whispered. The glass picked up speed, began moving around the letters one by one. We were shitting ourselves. 
I'm not entirely sure which of us snatched their hand away first, but the rest quickly followed. Maybe one of us knocked it in our eagerness to connect with whatever we had conjured, or maybe the entity bumped it, but the glass fell to the floor, bouncing off the carpet tiles. Huddled together, backs to the wall, breath held collectively, trembling, shivering, sobbing, expectant of what might happen next. We saw it. Clinging to each other in fear, we shrieked, cried out, called for our mummies. Its skin was translucent. It wore a long, white, flowing dress. Its cropped hair was as colourless as its attire. The apparition, the spectre, the presence was armed. With a Bible and a ewer of holy water, complete with sprinkler, it opened its mouth and cried out, Silence! in a broad Wicklow accent. A veilless, fuming Mother Superior stood before us in her nighty, completely unrecognisable without her habit. <laughs> that night, Sister Carmel performed a sort of exorcism around every corner of the school, followed closely by four sorry, scared, sleepy teenage girls. All we wanted was to be tucked up in our beds, but if she were to endure the purging, so were we. And boy, did she drag it out. At least when we finally managed to return to the dorm, it was with a story. And in truth, it did actually involve a white nun. Thanks so much, Emma. What a great story and what a chilling apparition. And if you think you can follow in Emma's storytelling footsteps, then get in touch through our website at 10 We are always, always looking for storytellers or contact us through our social media channels. Okay, on to our next story. And it was another first-timer. It was October 26th and we were in the black box in Belfast when Gloria O'Connor gave us this insight into what really goes on between doctors and nurses. I'm working as a nurse on night shift in the surgical ward of Altnagelvin Hospital Tower Block in the 80s. It was one of the best times of my life. And don't get me wrong, the work was hard. But you didn't have to deal with the strict regulations imposed by the draconian ward sisters in day duty. They knew everything that was going on. Whose bowels hadn't moved that day? <laughs> Who was spiking a temperature? And they knew which nurses had been out the night before. And it was actually frowned upon on day duty as wasting time if you sat beside a patient's bed to talk to them. On the night shift, rules were a bit more relaxed, except when the night sister, Batwoman, and her long uniform cape did her rounds. The first round was around midnight to check on all the patients and shine a torch under their eyes to see if they were sleeping. <laughs> well, if they were sleeping when she arrived, there was a good chance they weren't sleeping when she left. Another round again at about six o'clock in the morning to make sure all the turns were done and all of the observations recorded. In between these times, we could relax a little and have a bit of fun as long as the work was done. And we were traumatized in those days too, without realizing it. For we addressed the burns of distraught children who had been caught up in bomb blasts, nursed people who had lost limbs and explosions, and witnessed the gruesome results of pun punishment shootings to name but a few. And we'd watched people die with cancer and other horrible diseases and dealt with major hemorrhages. All this, and us barely out of our teens, 
but we sometimes relieve the stress of work and the trauma of our experiences by playing tricks or practical jokes on each other. Mary D., one of the older nurses, was one of our favorites to work with. She had the ability to fall asleep mid-sentence, snoring and all, <laughs> only to spring to life and finish her sentence when she heard the click of Batwoman's heels outside the office door. <laughs> Unfortunately, she didn't wake up quite so easily when the patient's buzzer sounded, usually looking for commodes. But we loved working with her all the same. And Mary D was very good to us younger nurses. She often cooked us her home-grown Donegal spuds and butter on the old electric ring in the ward kitchen. We repaid her kindness once when we visited her house by stealing her treasured garden gnome. <laughs> we eventually gave him back to her about six months later after sending her postcards from Henry the gnome telling her what a great time he was having in whatever part of the world one of us happened to be. She got her own back on us too by telling us awful stories about labour and the terrible pain she had endured. Don't ever do it, girls, she would tell us. When I was having my first, she said, the pain was so bad that I told the midwives to shoot me now. <laughs> but they wouldn't. <laughs> we were never quite sure if this was completely true or just designed to scare us. Either way, it was a useful form of contraception. <laughs> we liked to fold the sheets into apple pie beds too for the junior doctor in the little long call room at the end of the ward, giggling outside the door as they struggled to get their feet through the folded sheets. Oh, those poor souls had enough stress without us adding to it. But they were generally good-natured about it, especially when we made them tea and toast to keep them going on their long night shift. And once we poured apple juice into a glass container and told a student nurse that it was urine, and we had to taste it to see if there was any sugar in it, because the patient was diabetic. In front of our horrified eyes, we took a sip each and then handed it to her to do the same. We couldn't keep a straight face for long, though, so she soon guessed that we were up to something. And it wasn't just us who liked to play tricks. One night when we had a death in the ward, we phoned the mortuary porters to come and collect the body. They came somberly up the corridor as usual with their covered mortuary trolley. And when they followed us into the patient's room, the cover of the trolley sprang open and one of the porters sat bolt upright from his concealed position inside. <laughs> caused mayhem as we ran from the room, desperately trying to muffle their shrieks so as not to wake the other patients. <laughs> Yet, those boys weren't averse to a little gallows humour themselves. One Halloween night, Ward 9 up above us must have been a bit on the quiet side. Batwoman had just done her first round and we had settled the patients again with tea and toast and painkilling injections. The Ward 9 staff decided to dress up the skeleton from their treatment room in a pair of pyjamas held on by pillowcases tied around his middle and filled out with pillows. <laughs> then, with a rope around his neck, they dangled the skeleton out of their office window to appear grinning at our office window directly below. <laughs> Gruesomely backlit by the lights reflected from the windows of other wards. Of course, you couldn't do that now as the windows can barely open wide enough. Myself and my colleague watched as the skeleton slowly descended and dissolved into helpless laughter. But it turned out that the timing could not have been worse. Mary D, who had been snoring, heard the sharp click of heels outside the office door and sprang to life, ready to finish her last sentence. But she was arrested by the sight at the window. 
Batwoman appeared round the office door at that moment, and she too was met with the ghastly, smiling visage, dancing as he was dangled up and down by his oblivious handlers in the ward above. <laughs> the two screamed in unison, whilst my colleague and I looked on in panic now, our laughter cut short. Why, oh why, had Batwoman chosen to come to the ward at this time? She wasn't due for another couple of hours, at least. We straightened up and stood with bated breath, terrified for the furious reprimand that was surely coming. Even though we weren't the perpetrators, we would surely be judged to be guilty by association in her mind. But amazingly, her anger abated and her features softened. Girls, she said in a hushed tone, there's been a car bomb across the town, multiple casualties, we need all hands on deck. And we knew the drill. That was glorious, Gloria. Thanks so much. And I hope we'll have you back again soon. Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. But you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal if you like. Or maybe give the podcast a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd be very grateful. Or just sit back, relax and enjoy. Okay, on to our third and final story. And what can I say about the wonderful Paul Brady? Well, nothing really, but prepare to laugh. And just so you know, there are two well-earned F-bombs. Take it away, Paul. The trick they said was not to sweat the small stuff. The trick, they said, was never to go to bed on an argument and start each new day with a clean slate. With experience, I've learned that there are some situations that all the tricks in the world won't help. When you move house, for instance, it's almost inevitable that there will be pistols at dawn at some point, and those pistols will be fired with venomous intent over absolutely nothing. I had planned to move well, executed it more or less perfectly, and yet here we were the Duchess and I, in a car on a quiet mountain road, yelling at each other about which road would take us to Newton Abbey the quickest. <laughs> I genuinely have no idea what started it, and I know it really wasn't about the quickest route to Newton Abbey, but it was full-blooded and with no quarter given. Now, I'm more of a huffer. <laughs> and the Duchess is a shooter. But this row went on for so long and at such a ferocious rate that we started in our usual positions, passed each other halfway along Argument Street and ended up at the other end. She ended up sullenly looking out the window in silence while I ranted and raved until I eventually ran out of steam. It was then that I realised that it actually happened. It was Darby and Jones' fucking teabag. It was early 1991 and the Duchess and I were about to get married in her church, which was impossible without attending a residential engagement encounter weekend. <laughs> so on a crisp February morning, we found ourselves in the hallway of a monastic retreat, weighing up the other 40 couples. Our host was a priest called Father something, but you can call me Pete. <laughs> he wore a grey tunic because he was cool and trendy. And Moses sandals with socks because he really, really wasn't. <laughs> His helpers were an elderly couple who we christened Darby and Joan. 
pleasant but not warm, a bit churchy. Simon and Rachel arrived with matching suitcases. Sorry we're late, Father, she said. Mass got out late. I made the fingers down the throat bookmark, saying to the Duchess, they were a couple that my ma would have called a pair of sickners. We fell in with two other couples immediately. Big Sean and Sinead, a big spade from West Belfast, who didn't say very much, but when he did, it was always hilarious. And his lovely, talkative girlfriend, who was the type of wee girl who would link you when you were walking along and ask you what the gossip was. Then there was Emmett and Colette. They had met in the back of a peeler jeep. <laughs> when they were both arrested at the same festival for being drunk and disorderly. He was a shit-kicking culchy from Ballymagna somewhere. And she was the same, only from Ballymagna somewhere else. <laughs> they had met six weeks beforehand and were getting married for the crack. <laughs> the Duchess was shown to her slightly fussy room on the female side and I was taken to my cell in Blokewing. A concrete room with a crucifix on the wall and an alcove containing a physically short metal bed with a scratchy blanket. It was like an icebox. I could see my breath. All 40 couples were then called back together for an excruciating ice-breaking event. Everyone had to do a thing. Rachel said a prayer for us all. Emmett laughed out loud at her. Darby and Joan brought a single box of warm white wine to do all 80 people. <laughs> they apologised because they didn't know that wine had to be chilled. Big Sean just told him to stick it on the radiator in his cell for half an hour and that would do the trick. <laughs> that night, I squeezed my ample six foot four frame into a half bed and slept fully clothed in the style of an accordion. The scratchy blanket was exactly the same size as the bed, so I had to have it either over my legs or over my torso, but not both. I wrapped my emergency cacks around my feet. <laughs> I never even noticed the round red alarm bell on the wall, but I knew about it the next morning when they set it off to wake us all up. Darby and Joan were all a flutter. Today's special guests would be talking about sexual matters. <laughs> in came these two buck idiots who obviously made their own clothes and cut their own hair <laughs> to give us a talk on natural, natural contraception, or as it was commonly known, the rhythm method. We called it then what we still call it now, Vatican Roulette. So there are things that you'd know at this juncture if you have no basic knowledge of sexual practices from the Middle Ages. It was automatically assumed that 80 people aged from 20 to 35 were all still virgins. It was also assumed that you didn't understand the term contraception or know that there were various alternative methods available. It was automatically assumed that you were stupid and had lived your life up to that point under an extremely remote and extremely heavy Fenian rock. <laughs> 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 
I said nothing when they told us that there were no other viable forms of contraception. I bit my lip when they talked in whispers about our various upcoming wedding nights when we would share ourselves for the first time. The Duchess gave me the look, the one that says, don't. <laughs> but when they got out the office wall planner on a bag of stickers, I could contain myself no longer. <laughs> By various temperature-taking methods, their planner was based around their wife's reproductive cycle. So there were red stickers for an obvious few days of the month. There were yellow stickers with a baby's face on them for the days that you could conceive if you were so inclined, or days to totally avoid if you weren't in the mood for a brood. There were a couple of green for go days, which were as safe as houses if you fancied some apparently consequence-free activity of a sexual nature. And all the space between red and green was filled with brown stickers, which were the fertility equivalent of dodgy ground. Any questions, said the hippie husband. The Duchess shot me another, don't do it, look. <laughs> I replied with the look that said, sorry, love, I can't let this slide. <laughs> and put my hand up. Yes, he said patronizingly. I don't mean to be funny, I lied. <laughs> but I notice that there are only three green for go days on your whole chart and they're all clumped together. So let's assume that you're following, a paused for effect and made air bunnies, you're following this method. <laughs> you're telling me that you can only have sex, a gasp from Simon and Rachel, <laughs> on three very specific days when you'd better hope you've got nothing else to do. How do you make that work? His patronizing tone continued. We find that the weight and the expectation makes those three days all the more fulfilling. Uh-huh. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I can't see that working for me, to be fair. One more quick personal question, if you don't mind. Far away, he said. If you don't mind me asking, how many kids do you guys have? Eight, he said. <laughs> but we planned them all. The room erupted into laughter. Even Simon and Rachel cracked a naughty smile. I sat back smugly and crossed my arms. I leant over to the Duchess and whispered, the prosecution rests. <laughs> the next day, Dorby and Joan hosted how to make your marriage work over a long period of time. Never go to bed on an argument and don't sweat the small stuff they began. Fair enough, I thought. And believe it or not, you'll have arguments that you feel like they will threaten your very marriage over the stupidest of things. June and I's worst ever argument was over a tea bag. And someday it will happen to you. <laughs> now, in the years since I've added that sort of dramatic thing. <laughs> we laughed with the carefree foolishness of youth and love. We got married a month later. 30 happy years, three kids, three house moves later. And here we were, sitting in silence on a mountain road neither wanting to be the first to break the post-rage quiet. So Darby and Joan were actually right after all this time, I says. I could see her trying not to smile. This is no fucking teabag, she said softly. 
this is the best route to Newton Abbey. <laughs> it's totally worth divorcing over. <laughs> Fine. Before you finally get rid of me then, will we get some breakfast? Fine, she said. But after we take out your route to Newton Abbey, we'll leave the car home and we're going out for a drink. Vodka, not tea. No worries, June, I said. As it turns out, I took my temperature this morning, and you're lucky for you, it's a green for go day. <laughs> she started to laugh and nipped me on the arm, the universal saying that I was back in the good books for a way. Ah, God bless the Duchess. Thanks, Paul. I love that. And that is it for this podcast. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com and check out our website. We have a few extra events coming up, so keep an eye out for those. And please, if you can, tell as many people as you can about the podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10by9 happen, whether in the black box or elsewhere. And thanks to our amazing audiences and all our storytellers. But especially... Emma Kane, Gloria O'Connor, and Paul Brady. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye.